is breakthrough day. This is, turn your neighbor and say, this is breakthrough day. Because if you have a toddler, you are tired of living in one room with that toddler. And that will facilitate breakthrough. And if you're like me, you came up here and you said, I'm going to stay on my diet, but train day ruined that for you. All of these things are coming together for breakthrough day. And I believe you're going to have a breakthrough. Uh, before we actually get into the session, I have way too much to talk to you for. i got a couple questions. First of all, uh, let's start this way, all the way to the back. If you are a grandparent, raise your hands. If you're a grandparent, okay, wow, way to go. If you are over 50 years old and still coming to camp, you're a wildly successful human. Give it up for the grandparents. I did a camp one time that was all 65-year-olds and up, and I wasn't looking forward to it. I was like, oh, man, I don't know. I got, what I realized is if you still love camp at 72 years old, you are a fun person. You are a fun. I had the best time that week. Okay, let's go. Uh, you have teenagers or 20-somethings. Teenagers or 20-somethings. Raise your hand. Okay, I'm getting a survey here. I'm seeing. This is going to help me today as I talk to you. You have um, – Elementary age all the way down to toddlers and babies. Where are you? Okay, good. Good, 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 good. Okay. All right. For everyone that just get your hand back up if you have toddlers. To, okay. I'm going to give you a little tip. There's no scripture on this. This is just my experience speaking on families, marriage, and parenting for so long. Um, if you would rate your marriage from 1 to 10, all of you that have toddlers, 1 to 10, the amount of people you have under seven years old in your house, you get to add a point for each one of those. So if you think your marriage is a five, but you have three that are seven and under, no, you're an eight. You're killing it. I remember the day where my three children left our home, got in our minivan, buckled themselves in the minivan, and didn't fight. And I looked at my wife with tears in my eyes and said, we might just make it, babe. We might just make it. Hold my hand. Stay strong. So I want to speak to every different age and stage in our talk today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. You're going to see some redundancy between what I said to you on Tuesday and what we said today. That's all right. That's by design. And again, I want to remind you, the goal here, families, grandparents, parents, uh, whatever stage or age you're at, Find one or two things. A man came up to me this morning and said, man, on Tuesday you said one thing that really brought some clarity to one said, that's the goal here because I'm going to give you way too much to go home and apply. You want to kind of go, Holy Spirit, um, not Phil or Kurt, you tell me what is it you're putting on. Uh, I love this passage of Ephesians chapter 4. Before we get to it, I want to do a review of Tuesday morning. Uh, we talked about strengthening the resilience of our families as a family unit, whatever that de definition, whatever age or stage you're at, and why? is because the idol of overprotection. We need to be deliberate about producing perseverance. The Bible is very, very clear that perse perseverance is something that needs to be produced. And we talked about five ideas. The first one was master the message. This is learning truth. Then we had correct carefully. That's speaking truth. Seek hard truth for yourself as the leader of the family. you got to be... You put yourself in environments where people will challenge you biblically. Now, the reason I'm reviewing this, look at this. Look at how many of those start with the Bible. So often, we're dealing with the fruit instead of the root. And, and, and we've gotten this really reverse thing going on in the church that, that COVID has revealed, and that is 
um, the Bible person is the pastor and everyone else is just passive. That will not get you through. What is said on Sunday morning is a launching point. Sermons don't change lives. And this is hard for me to say because I love sermons. Sermons position people to have their life changed by God. The sermon should make you hungry to go, i got to master what God is saying. I can't tell you the amount of people that go to church every, every, every week that they don't actually understand the doctrinal truths that will set them free. I want to encourage you, go into next year. Um, it's better and funner than you think it is. I can't tell you, some pastors are so good at making the most exciting thing ever, the Bible, sound boring. It's a talent. How can you turn Jesus into something boring? But, but I want to impress upon you to go on this journey of truth. And then the last two are about attitude. Remain calm. That's responding well instead of reacting. And then passion over perfection. That's about your investment. As opposed to being a perfect parent, you're an invested parent. And that's really the only thing we can do. Um, I want to go one step level uh, further in specificness this way. Resilience in my kids and grandkids. This is Ephesians 4. Um, Paul starts out this whole chapter in Ephesians 4 with this kind of really, like I said uh, in Timothy, it's, it's another one of those manipulative verses where he really gets our attention. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then he goes on to describe beautifully in the next few chapters what a worthy life looks like. If you want to make your life a worthy life, this is a great place to start reading and studying. Um, how worthy of a life am I living right now? It's so hard to tell in COVID. So we we have four children. I told you that earlier. Uh, right before COVID, we were down to the last child in our house. Madeline, our middle child, uh, was 23, halfway through college, and decided to take a pause in her college career. And so Emma was off at Cal State Fullerton, and Jesse was living in another city, and Dijon was living in another city, and they would come in probably twice a month for a family meal, only because I I am not a great chef, but I've learned from others to cook such delicious food that my children still love me. This is my post-empty nest strategy. And uh, they would come in a couple times a month, but they were scattered, and Maddie was all set to transfer to Cal State Santa Claus, or Cal St uh, State Fullerton in Southern California. And Kelly and I were having all these dis discussions on empty nest. Like, we got to get to know each other again. We got to figure out what we're, we're all both so invested in family and our kids. And we're getting ready for this. We're gearing up for this. And a month before COVID, my oldest son calls me up and says, hey, listen, uh, the people I'm running this house from are selling the house and moving to Reno. And two of the roommates that I've, I've been rooming with for four years are also going to Reno. I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'll find a couple of roommates. Can I come back and live with you for a month? Quote, unquote. Sure, come back. He takes over my office, kicks me out of my office. I got a desk in the corner of my bedroom now. And so two days after that, Dijon, our second, calls me up and says, hey, I got to reorganize some stuff in my life. I don't like the roommates I'm with. I got to figure out something. I might be quitting my job and trying to find this other job. I just need a place to reboot. Can I come back and live with you for a month? Sure. 
So he goes up into Kelly's office upstairs. So then Emma calls me, and she says, hey, I'm not sure I like this program down here. I really have a hard time connecting with a church here or Christians, and I think it would be better for me to go to William Jessup University, the local Christian university, and um, is it okay if I move back home? Of course. Well, the baby, of course you want the baby back. The two older boys, you're like, they want the baby back. The baby could stay until she's 80. Um, and then my, my other daughter said, well, I'm not going to transfer down there if my sister's not going to be there. So a month before COVID, all four of my adult children were back in my house. Before that, the kitchen was always clean. Now I do not have any forks or spoons or, or glasses because they are left in the children's room. They said, they said, what do you want for Father's Day? I, no dishes in your room is what I want. Some dads just got inner healing right there. So just trying to confess to you my stage of life right now, and I'm preaching to myself and helping, hoping some of the shrapnel hits you this morning. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and look at the context here. Again, it's the same format as in 2 Timothy Paul preaches for three chapters, grace, 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 grace. And why? You can't do any of what we're about to teach on this morning unless you're doing it out of grace. If you're doing it out of willpower, you're never going to make it. If you're doing it out of grace power, you're going to make it, and you're going to make it abundantly. What is grace power? It's responding to God's love for you by giving love for others. If that's your motive, man, I didn't deserve what God gave me, therefore I'm going to give to people whether they deserve it or not, then you can give all this stuff. If you're doing it out of it's the right thing and check out the box, that's willpower. You'll never make it. Um, how do you live a worthy life? That's the theme of chapters 4 through 6. Absolutely, please read the whole chapters. We're going to just read five verses here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Here we go. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Um, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Circle the word mature. This is the theme of these two paragraphs. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when we read this verse, we read it from a very American individualistic way. So here's how we usually read it. So Christ himself gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's like the Bible's Enneagram. Which one am I? I'm a pastor, teacher, apostle. I'm an apostle, teacher. And we read it as an individual going, I'm supposed to figure out and take a test to figure out which one of these gifts I am. That's not what I believe the passage is actually intending us to get. What the passage wants us to know is that God cares so much about the family of God, he gives an abundance of gifting to the family of God. We're supposed to read this and not be impressed with which gift we are. We're supposed to be impressed with how many gifts God gives us. Towards what end? Equipping for service in maturity. So instead of looking at this passage and go, which one do I got to be? You know what? I think I'm very apostolic. I'm so apostolic. We should read it and go, what does God want to do to equip me so I can serve better in maturity? Verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of Instagram. Thank you. I thought since Brian could add a word to a song, I could add one to him. Um, 
by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head or the source, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. How does the family grow? How does the family of God grow? How does your family go? How does the family in your business grow? By the, by the way, these principles work in every relationship. It's really simple. Coming out of COVID, if you want your church to grow, your family to grow, your business to grow, here's the formula according to Ephesians chapter 4. In love, as each one does their part. Super clearly. So if everyone's doing their part, but they're not doing it lovingly, we won't grow. If everyone's loving everyone, but it's chaos, and no one is finding their role and doing their part, you won't grow. But as soon as people start loving each other and go, man, I see your part, I appreciate your part, and I love you in your part, I'm going to affirm your part, and I'm going to play my part with responsibility and maturity. When that comes together, it's like the old A-team with Mr. T. I love it when a plan comes together. Okay, some three of you got that. Okay, good, let's go. Why do we need to re-understand the issue of maturity? Why do we need to revisit this idea of growing people in their part in maturity? Um, and, and, and another way of asking that same question, why are kids so vulnerable nowadays? And I probably should say, uh, by kids, I mean all of our kids, whatever age or stage, all the way to 20s and 30s and teens and tighters and uh, teeters. Um, it, it, the reason is maturity is messed up. Our culture has, uh, go ahead, go to the next slide. Our culture has messed up maturity in three ways. There's probably more than three. One is premature adulthood and pre-adolescence. So what's going on is our culture is asking little boys and little girls to become kings when they're still third and fourth grade. This is a deliberate marketing technique to empower uh, nine, 10, and 11-year-olds to put pressure on you to buy them more mature things. Very, very deliberate. If you read actually what Nickelodeon has done over the last 20 years, here's their whole strategy. Every single Disney show that's got a teenage star in the Disney show, the 18-year-old starring in that Disney show is appealing to the 12-year-old. Because the 12-year-old wants to be more empowered. They want to be more like the 18-year-old. So the shows that star the 18-year-old are appealing to the 12-year-olds are written for the 12-year-olds. It's a deliberate strategy to force children out of childhood early. Uh, then there's pressure to conform to cultural identity in adolescence. So whether it be academically, you know, most kids need to find their academic direction by the time that they're in fifth or sixth grade. You start testing kids for your academic di uh, direction in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. If my academic future was decided when I was a fifth grader, I would not be in the job that I'm currently in. But we do that. And not only do we do that academically, we do it sociologically, we do it uh, relationally, and we do it sexually. You have to, in the month of June, tell everyone how you identify. And again, it's not even gotten to the place of, um, uh, of what I post. It's you, you're in trouble if you don't post it. This is the pressure going on in our kids to figure out their identity very, very early, and to let their identity be driven by one issue, which is sexuality in, in the case of our culture right now. And then all of that is combined in delayed independence in early adulthood. Here's what the irony of this is. 
He put it on children to decide earlier uh, to come out of childhood, then to decide their identity. By the time that they're 26, they don't know who they are, and they're already cynical and depressed. And they, have a, they struggle to launch. I can't tell you how many 20-somethings I talk to, and they go, I, I just don't have direction. Their problem not, is not primarily doubt. They have a lot of doubt. There's a lot of doubt, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that hopefully tomorrow. Their problem is no direction, no vision. What should I do with my life? I don't. There's too many choices, and it's too expensive, and it's too confusing, and I don't know what to believe. That's where our 20-somethings end up. Just doesn't, I don't know the wind for me. I don't know the passion for me. And so there is no mature, healthy pathway to adulthood in our culture right now, and there's no deciding moment. In the Jewish culture, it was 13. There was a moment. You stepped in. There was an initiation into adulthood, and expectations changed. No one knows where that is because in one sense, we placed it at 11 years old, and in another sense, we're not asking it of the 22-year-old. Never before have we been in a moment as confusing as this, and in that is a great opportunity. Here's the thing. I said this to the guy that came up to me this morning and said, I found that one thing. I appreciate what you're doing. The truth works if we'll work it. The Bible has never been more relevant. And I think even in an evangelistic tool, when you take people outside the church and go, let me show you some of these principles, it really does affirm the reality of God and how much he loves us. Okay, i got to go fast because i got so much to say in this passage, and I won't get to all of it. Um, how do you build tough and God-honoring kids? How do you build that maturity where there's some toughness there? Uh, I was talking to a pastor recently, and they had to lay off some people that they were uh, using to build a building because in the middle of COVID, they ran out of supplies. They couldn't get any supplies because everything's stuck halfway across the ocean. And so it was just going to be six months, and they had no work for these people, so they laid off some people. We're so sorry. We'll bring you back as soon as we get the supplies. Uh, they laid off a 30-year-old man, and his parents called the pastor and shouted at him. Do you realize what this is doing to our son? No, but I realize what you're doing to your son. How do we get beyond that? How do we build tough and God-honoring children? Number one, hold on to hard work. There is so much teaching going on nowadays of going, have a margin, have a pathway, slow down. And I get that because we are very harried and our world is very saturated with information. But let me explain something. You're not tired because you're working too hard. You're not tired. Your child is not tired because they are working too hard. They are tired because they're working without a vision. And they are tired because they are dealing with relational drama. What fatigues us is being out of aligned on relationships. Hard work is good for us. There is a fatigue that happens from not knowing how to work with people or working in a dysfunctional environment. And there's a fatigue that happens from putting our hand to a plow and working hard on what we know God has for us to do. I can't tell you how big the difference is. I've gotten to the end of days where every single meeting, meeting was misaligned and I'm dealing with relational drama and I am exhausted, but I can't sleep. And I've gotten to days where we were all on the same page, worked very hard, 
I came home, did dishes, vacuumed, put clean sheets on the bed, got everything organized for the next day, and I got into that clean sheet bed, and I felt Jesus. Do I know? There's a beautiful fatigue, okay, and there's a frustrating fatigue. And we've not, we've, we've tried to go back off, do less, do less. And that's not really, the flow of it is this. Work hard six days, totally rest one. And if you don't work hard the six, the rest you take in the one doesn't feel right. And vice versa. Some people have taught, you know, rest to work and, or work to rest. I think you could, both are equally true. Um, my mom had a garden. I hated this garden. It was as big as this sanctuary. And before I could go and do anything in the summer, I had to weed one whole row uh, in that garden, and then I had to pick stuff when they were gone and stuff. And I would get up in the morning in the summer, and I'd say, me and Johnny are going to go do this, or there's baseball there. She's, no, you're not. You can go out there and weed in that stupid garden. And I was like, I hated her. She was really good at growing eggplants and totally horrible at cooking eggplants. It was a bad situation. Slimy. And I'd be out there just cursing my mom in my spirit. Oh, why is she making me do this? Why is she making me do this? Why is she making me do this? And she'd all about childhood until I moved out and went to college. I weeded in the garden, and I chopped wood, and I, I harvested berries. And, 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 and guess what I do now? Every morning, I get up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee, I have my devotion time, and I go out to my backyard garden. My mom had a chore list, honestly, it went from here to this floor. And it was illustrated, and there were consequences on it if I didn't do this. If you worked hard and fast, my mom would give you more chores. Oh, you're already done? I got some more for you. If you worked slow, she would give you more chores as punishment. I think she did a favor to me. Why does God give the gifts? To equip for works of service. What is a great room for a family when your children know how to serve? It's easier to build a strong child than it is to repair a broken room. How? Two really quick ideas on how. Model service at church and at home. You have to model service. If you're not working and serving, then they're not going to work and serve. Um, we do a thing in Mexicali, Mexico. We bring a 1,000 people to Mexicali, Mexico, and we build homes, and we do VBSs for churches, and we repair Bibles and all this stuff. Uh, I went the first five years before my wife got to come because my youngest wasn't old enough to come. So she stayed. But as soon as my youngest was old enough, my wife started coming. And she signed up for the setup team, and she signed for the breakout team, and she did a team in the middle. So she was coming not for the seven days, but for like 10 or 11 days. And before she came, I would go, and this is what happened. I'd walk around camp, and they'd be like, oh, Pastor Kurt, it's so cool that a senior pastor's down here. So cool. It's so awesome that you still love kids. And we love you, Pastor Kurt. Way to go. And it was just really building up. I was walking around camp. I'm a real servant in Christ. I'm really. And then my wife, who's an actual hard worker, would come. And here's what my, here's what my feedback from my people changed to from Kurt is so awesome in here. And people would come up to me, straight up to me, and go, Do you know how wonderful your wife is? Do you know? And the connotation was, I didn't. Do you know what a hard worker she is? She is a super hard worker. Super hard. And then what they didn't say, but their whole eyes and body language said, unlike you. She's just not up there talking and stuff. She's getting her hands dirty with the real people. And that's, and they were right. My children have benefited tremendously because my wife models so powerfully. 
how to do this, what they see you do, uh, and then have both routine and rewards for completing it. Have routine and rewards. Sooner is better. Get a three-year-old to do something. I know when the three-year-olds do it, it makes more work for you. By the way, if you've not done this and the 20-somethings bounce back, it should happen. When all my adults came and came back, we sat down and had a meeting. I said, if you're going to come back, here's the expectations. Blah, 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 blah. And I've literally said to them over this two years of COVID, I said, listen, you agreed. Did you not agree? I shouldn't be asking you to do dishes. You should be at the point of already offering. And so wherever they are in the aging stage, set the standard, keep the standard. And when they do the standard, celebrate it. Here's the key question. How are you rewarding work ethic? Most families are rewarding stuff like soccer and grades. That's fine. But can I be really honest with you? Your grandchild or child is horrible at soccer. They're horrible. They are never going to make it to Major League Soccer in America, and Major League Soccer in America is the weakest soccer league in the world. You want them to make it to Major League Soccer and everyone else in the world. I work with a European. They're laughing at our Major League Soccer, okay? Stop spending all your time rewarding soccer. And I'll tell you this. After their first job, after one job, not a single other person is going to look at their transcript. After job, When they're on job two, all the question is, how'd you do on job one? So they're getting ulcers trying to produce this GPA that no one but you and them are going to know. And for me, that was a blessing. Okay, number two, let's keep moving on. Correctly, uh, correct, clearly, and compassionately. This is the same point as yesterday. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's interesting to note that Apostle Paul says it one way in 2 Timothy and the exact same thing here in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. How do you do that? Three suggestions. Choose a place to bring correction. Okay, we do this for toddlers. Has anyone anyone here have a little punishment place in their house? This little corner. Um, one idea Pastor Ray had, he's such a genius dad, is they had whiny rocks in the backyard. So if a child was whiny, they'd say, it's okay, everyone gets whiny every once in a while. It's just, we don't want you to be whiny around us because it's miserable for us. So if you want to be whiny, if that's your choice, there's a little rock, go stand on it. Come back in the house when you're done being whiny. And the kid would come back in. No, not done. I can sit on your face. Go back out there. Okay, come back in. I'm not whiny. I got a good smile. You know what that is? It's teaching them to take control of their own emotions. Okay, you don't take control of your emotions. You give them space to do it. Now, the problem is once we get out of toddler and elementary school, we stop doing this. But I really encourage you, um, and, and, and this is where grandparents, you have to ask and get permission and figure out the strategy. But like Ray never corrected his teenage children. I wish I'd have known this when mine were teens. He never corrected them in the home. So if, if they had a correction coming, he'd take them to McDonald's and sit down. He'd buy them something while they're eating. He'd say, listen, I called you here today because I like this, this, and this about you, but your mom and I really need this. And that way he says, I didn't want them to associate correction with home. I wanted them to associate correction with unhealthy food. <laughs> I don't know, but to this day, I just don't like McDonald's. Okay, here's a really good po point. Decide which parent should bring correction. So what I've found is with my boys, I'm more intense than I am with my girls, and so I, I can make things harder. So Kelly and I, we have the powwow. Like, like I will say to her regularly, and my kids know this, I'll say to her regularly, you need to tell those boys this. 
said, I go down there and go, you guys are doing great. Your, your dad believes in you. And Kelly's like, I've got an issue with you. But it's really actually coming from me and right, vice versa. By the way, this changes in season. So most of our growing up, Kelly was the bad cop to the boys and I was the bad cop to the girls. But with one of our, uh, our girls, we switched that. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be more of the bad cop. You need to connect with her a little bit more. And so you have this dialogue. Usually it's the reverse of what you want to do. So you, if you're just like, I see everything that's going on in this kid's life and it's all wrong, you need to become the encourager. And the encourager needs to bring them correction because they'll be received more. Does that make sense? We don't raise all children the same, correct? Okay, uh, really quick. Define the role of grandparents. Define the role of grandparents. So how does a grandparent bring correction? How do they clearly bring correction? That is decided by the parents, not the grandparents, grandparents. This is leaving and cleaving. By the way, what you can do, grandparents, is you can go to them and facilitate that conversation. Because a lot of times you'll see things, and in the fog of the war, the parents don't see things, and you're like, you know what? Little Johnny is cutting people. So maybe, but you have to do it under the authority of the parents, or you're going to mess up the leave and cleave, and you're going to hurt that marriage. Especially because you don't realize that you have a blind spot towards your child in that marriage. Sometimes you're very permissive with your child. Sometimes you're too hard on your child. So to leave and cleave, you got to go and say, listen, tell us, how can we help you bring compassionate correction? Key question here is, am I a truth communicator or a love communicator? So what I found in the speak the truth in love that Paul talks about, some of us are prone to be more truth. I'm truth. I'll just say it. And my wife is really more diplomatic, and she's more love. We have to kind of do a role reversal there. i got to adjust and become more diplomatic. And she's got to be more plain and just speak it out in our particular relationship. So know which one you are. All right, moving on. we got so much more. This is the one I really want you to get because this, this next one is very underdone nowadays. Develop their discernment. He says, when you're doing these things, then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Every wind of teaching. What he's saying is maturity means you'll be able to discern what is good teaching and biblical teaching and what is just a fad and a wind blowing back and forth. I cannot tell you how many people have sent me video clips this last year saying, Pastor Kurt, if you'd only seen this, the communists are taking over, the, this is taking over, that's taking over. And I'm like, God is not aware of any of these videos. Thank you for sending them to me. I'll pass them on to the Father. Listen, is there stupid chaos in our world right now? Is our culture going in a stupid direction right now? Has it always been going in a stupid direction? The secret is to be discerning, not alarmed. Discerning. What is discernment? Let me give you a definition here. Uh, Discernment is the positive opposite of faith. Or it's knowing what not to believe. It's really important to teach people what to believe in. But every once in a while, you run into a person and go, man, that person's high faith, low discernment. They really believe for great things out of God, but they're doing it in a way that's going to get people hurt. We need children and adults and church leaders and business leaders that are full of faith and discernment. I know what to believe. I know what not to believe. Um, Okay, let's just apply this to different childhood stages. This is 
very critical from fifth grade to about age 22 that you go heavy on discernment. Here's a phrase. I want you to write this down sometime. Dialogue, not dictation. Okay, so anyone here, your, your kids are going through that stage or you remember when your kids were going through that stage where they ask you every question and they think you know what the answer is? Hey, Daddy, 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 um, how, how does a tree grow? Well, there's the seed and the fruit. And hey, Daddy, um, Daddy, 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 what, what happens to food when we eat it? Well, that's an interesting one. Okay, let's talk about that. Hey, Daddy, Daddy, why is the sky blue? I started just making things up. Well, the sky is blue because there's a giant sheet of vinyl up there. And uh, that's how God keeps the birds in. And I, I mean, and at third and fourth grade, they'll believe you. They'll believe you. They'll go, okay, cool. And they'll go to school and tell their friends. And they'll come home and they'll go, there's no vinyl up there. Johnny said there's no vinyl up there. No, he is. Johnny's wrong. I know that family. They're all wrong. Okay, listen to me very, very clearly on this. That switches right around fourth and fifth grade because the frontal lobes start to develop more and they gain critical thinking skills. So they go from believing you know everything to the, at the end of adolescence believing you know nothing. Right? So what happens is we don't switch. So we're still in expert mode. And we go in fifth grade expert mode. That No, you need to get out of expert mode and into asking mode. This is so important. Let me tell you from a guy who spent 27 years working with college students what happens. In the Christian home, what, that is, there's dictation of doctrine instead of dialogue about truth. What happens is they develop their frontal lobe, and right around 8th, ninth, 10th grade, right in there, they start deciding, I wasn't told everything. There's other answers to these questions. They're hiding stuff from me. They're, honestly, they're going, they're... They just want me to believe only this and never have these thoughts. That feels restrictive to me. So they start thinking these thoughts, and then by college, they become courageous enough to tell you they disagree with you. And then you go, I'm shocked. What evil professor led them astray? Now, the evil professor articulated what they were already thinking. Listen to me very carefully. Most children go off the rails faith-wise their freshman and sophomore year of high school. Then it manifests in their college years. Here's what happens. They go into high school desperately needing to be accepted by a friend group. And they're not thinking about the future at all. They're like, okay, it's the first week of school. I must be accepted. And so if they attach to that group, they'll start believing what that group believes so that they actually can stay in that group. That'll happen. That dynamic happens all the way through the sophomore year. About at the end of sophomore year, they start getting smart enough in their critical thinking to go, wow, I'm attaching to a group that is not going to survive this experience. And by their senior year, they won't do stupid stuff uh, because that group's pressuring them because they'll realize I'm never going to see these people again. I see them very little. So what happens is we get all worried about them their senior year. Oh, my goodness, they're going off to college. Where are they at faith-wise? Do we do a good enough job? You need to be worried their freshman year. And you need to pull out all the stocks. And grandparents, this is where you could be huge to make them associate and attach with a healthy group their freshman year. I know guys that, like, I have very little finances, but I'm pulling all my resources together, and I'm going to buy a boat, and we're going to be on the boat every single weekend, freshman and sophomore year, because my children are going to be preferred to be in a social group around me. Same thing with, with, with family meal night. Get them in that healthy group. And then here's how you do this. And I'm 
double down on family meals. If you're going to ever insist, this is what, um, go ahead and next slide. The next slide. There it is. Uh, okay, I guess I didn't put this in your notes, Mr. Director. Um, the how on this is double down on family meal time. It's not in the slides. And then ask a million questions. Ask a million questions. The thing your child should hear the most from you from about fifth grade to age 22 is, what do you think? What do you think? Have you considered? What about? Ask a million questions, a million questions. Talk about the why behind the what. We're all nervous about the behavior. Please do these behaviors. Go to church, read your Bible, pray, have only Christian friends, date only Christian people. Get, get underneath that. Get underneath that and talk about the why. Here's the key question. How is good thinking rewarded in soccer? So important. Again, we're rewarding grades in soccer. When your child has a discernment epiphany. So my kid came home one day and said, you know, back to those people, they're always so dumb. I get heartbroken. I said, man, you're becoming a superstar. you got to find a good thinking moment and reward them. All right, I need to really, really move. I got one minute for two points. Okay, here we go. Um, Brian took an extra two minutes. I was watching, so I'm going to take three. Four, model interdependence over isolation. This is clear. Okay, you have three choices in life. And again, I mentioned it Tuesday. Phil taught on this so well. One choice is dependence. I need you to get anything done. The other choice is independence. I don't need you. Biblically, it's interdependence. I need you and you need me. So oftentimes, strong parents will model unintentionally independence. Uh, you know, we don't need this church. They need us. And parents in crisis will model dependence. Oh, we don't know what to do. We just need help. And what you want to do is you want to model healthy biblical interdependence. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. How do you do this? Celebrate other people's gifts. When you see a gift different than yours, so often with my kids, I have uh, this communication gift. The non-communicating, serve-behind-the-scenes people, I make a big deal out of those people. I, um, every single type of gift, you want to go, man, that's amazing. We couldn't do that. And, and I want to caution you here. Very, very, very careful how you talk about churches, church people, and church leadership. Oftentimes what will happen is we'll come home and we'll go, man, that pastor, our youth pastor, did not do what I wanted him to do. We'll sit down at the table and we'll go, I can't believe blah, 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 blah. And then our children will go, man, you know what? I'm not even sure I really like the church. You make a hero out of people. They're trying their best. They're doing their best. They're so great at this. Every weakness has a strength. Find the strength and extol the strength and model the strength and be wildly a big fan about the strength. And then here's the other thing. Build deep and lasting friendships. I'll tell you, there's several types of wealth. Right now, everyone is kind of looking at the stock market like no, no one in my lifetime has ever looked at the stock market. Are you a GameStop? Did you buy GameStop stock? Are you going to Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff? Listen, do that. Be a great steward. 
build your financial wealth. I think that's a godly idea to do that. Um, another type of wealth we build is significance, you know, our title, our position, how well-known we are. Let me tell you the real wealth that will get you through life. Be wealthy content. Don't, you know, I know two guys that knew each other for 20 plus years. They both were in law enforcement. They worked together. Their wives love each other. Their kids love each other. They were on the golf course three months ago and they were betting. They had like $5, some stupid tiny amount on this round that comes down to the 18th hole. And a guy puts it, it's about 18 inches from the hole. And he walks over there and picks his ball up. And the guy said, I didn't give you that putt. This is 18 inches. Forgive me, God, I'll die. God didn't give you that putt. You got to putt that putt. He goes, I'm not going to putt that putt. That's insulting. They have not spoken since. Don't be that person. Be gracious. Hard to offend. When you get to a hard part in your relationship, double down. Because what's going to happen is when you see, when your children see you, grandparents, this is critical for you. When your grandchildren see the richness of relationship in your life, they're going to go, man, I'm going to do what they're doing. I'm going to follow the path they follow. Because we all long for that. Here's the key question, and I'll end with this. Are you in a small group? Are you in a small group? So I'm in this beautiful small group, and we go from home to home. And one of the homes that we're in, they have a 13-year-old boy. And um, when we first started going there, I noticed that he would go up to his room to do homework, and we'd be down in the small group. He would sneak back in, and he would look at the small group. And at one point, his mom said, Blake, go back upstairs and do your homework. And I took her aside after and said, you know what? I think you should actually invite Blake to come and get the small group. And she's like, sure. I'm like, yeah, great. He, can, he asks the best questions. He shares real clear requests. So then I said, you know what? We should once a month when we meet in a small group, we invite our kids into the small group. In fact, in our small group, we do very little Bible study. What I found is when we ask, hey, what are you praying for? I've renamed our small group from a Bible study to an, a parents of adult children survivor group. We just all talk about our adult children and our worries with them, right? And it's so fun inviting them into that moment. There's two types of small groups, awkward and awesome. How many here have ever been in an awkward small group before? Yes, you know what I mean. My encouragement to you is to do the work of maturity to go from awkward to finding interdependent, biblical, mature, awesome and then make your children watch you do it. Amen? Father God, I thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. I thank you so much for the powerful and timeless truths here. I pray for those that are going just through that moment where they're trying to build discernment in their child or trying to model hard work or, Father God, trying to model the richness of great relationships. Father, we cannot do this without your help. By grace, give us this skill, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Staff here and tomorrow. I think I just came on. My name is J.R. Luzbo. I serve on staff here at Mount Hermon, and uh, 
Tomorrow, we are going to give you an opportunity to uh, execute on so many of the amazing truths uh, that we are passionate about when it comes to kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Tomorrow, we will receive this week's Mount Hermon Family Camp offering, and it is all about kids. I want to share a little bit about the kids today, and then you can go to the Lord between now and tomorrow and decide if you'd like you to be part of what's going on here. When my wife, Lori, and I arrived here years ago to serve on staff, our three boys were ages 3, 10, and 11. Today, all three are grown, living in different parts of the country, doing their thing. We have three amazing daughter-in-laws and one grandchild.